Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm David Ross and welcome to episode 18 of the Sun's Israel's War on Terror podcast. Negotiations to free hostages kidnapped by the Hamas terror group during the October 7th massacres have been complicated by the deaths of scores of Palestinians during a stampede as an aid delivery took place in Gaza. Israel says most died in the crush as hundreds of people crowded round the lorries. Hamas has accused soldiers of firing at civilians. The IDF has rejected the claims, saying it fired warning shots. The Israel Defense Forces Rear Admiral Daniel Hagari is adamant a mob ambush was to blame. No IDF strike was conducted towards the aid convoy. I want to repeat that. No IDF strike was conducted towards the, the aid convoy. On the contrary, the IDF was there conducting a humanitarian operation to secure the humanitarian corridor and allow the aid convoy to reach its designated distribution point. This humanitarian aid came from Egypt, went through a security screening at the Kerem Shalom humanitarian crossing in Israel, and then entered Gaza for distribution by private contractors. As these vital humanitarian supplies were making their way towards Gazans in need, thousands of Gazans dispensed upon the trucks. Some began violently pushing and even trampling other Gazans to death, looting the humanitarian supplies. The unfortunate incident resulted in dozens of Gazans killed and injured. At 4.40 a.m., the first aid truck in the humanitarian convoy started making its way through the humanitarian corridor that we were securing. Yes, the IDF was securing the humanitarian corridor so that the aid convoy could reach its destination in northern Gaza. Our tanks were there to secure the humanitarian corridor for the aid convoy. Our UAVs were there in the air to give our forces a clear picture from above. During this humanitarian operation, as you can see in this video, the tanks that were there to secure the convoy sees the Gazan being trampled and cautiously tries to disperse the mob with a few warning shots. When the hundreds became thousands and things got out, out of hand, the tank commander decided to retreat to avoid harm to the thousands of Gazans that were there. IDF spokesman Daniel Hagari there. So is a hostage ceasefire deal still possible? Middle East expert, author and former editor of the Jerusalem Post, Yaakov Katz, says the situation is potentially further complicated by a developing scandal around an intelligence failure prior to October 7. I think that the, there, there is an effort on all sides to reach a deal. 
Israel would like to reach a deal that would see some of the hostages, of course, all of them if possible, to return home. And Hamas, which has its back up against the wall as Israel continues to encircle the remaining Hamas terrorists who are fighting in the area of Khan Yunus and is contemplating and preparing for a large-scale offensive in that last southern town of Rafah, which is where Hamas has basically its last units and its tunnels that it uses to smuggle in weapons from Egypt still remain. And the Americans would like to see a deal reached that would prevent an Israeli operation in Rafah, would also get back the hostages, and would end this war so Joe Biden can focus on trying to defeat Donald Trump in November. So everybody has an interest to get to a deal. The question is whether the sides can meet them in the middle and make the compromise and pay the prices that will be required. Israel, for example, will have to release from prison a significant number of Palestinian prisoners, including some which we in Israel use the phrase who have blood on their hands, basically people who have murdered Israeli Jews. The Hamas will have to give up some of its bargaining chips, and those are the Israeli hostages that they've been holding since October 7th. And Israel also will have to stop the war for an extended period of time. What's being discussed, David, is about six weeks or so, seven weeks maybe. And that is a big price to pay because you have Hamas on the run. You currently have the upper hand, despite the losses that Israel continues to suffer with its own soldiers. But is that does that make sense, strategically speaking, to take this pause? So I'm a little skeptical. But listening to Joe Biden make that comment, and by the way, I'll just say one last thing. It was a bit of a surreal video, if you watched it, where Joe Biden is standing in an ice cream shop, holding a an ice cream cone, leaning in every you know few seconds to try to get a, like a lick or a bite, and talking about a ceasefire that's coming in Israel. It was, it was totally disconnected. But put that aside for a moment, I think that, you know, obviously this is on everyone's minds. What do you think is acceptable in terms of a deal for Benjamin Netanyahu? What can he sell to his right-wing government? It's going to be complicated. I think that no matter what deal he brings, pretty much, unless it's a deal that gets back the hostages without Israel having to stop the war, without Israel having to release prisoners, then everyone in, in his coalition would vote for it. The moment he'll have to release Palestinian prisoners and suspend the offensive in Gaza for a period of time, he will most likely face opposition from two of his right-wing partners, that is Betzal Smutrich of the Religious Zionist Party and Itamar Ben-Gvir of the Jewish Power Party. Those two have already said that they would vote against such a proposal. Now, there's voting against it in the security cabinet. Netanyahu would still have a majority from the other members of the coalition. And there's also potentially bolting the coalition as a result of this deal, claiming that it's a capitulation to the Palestinian demands, which some of them have said they might do, although I would put that, you know, within its right context, it'll be difficult to see people leaving the coalition over something like this and bringing down a right-wing government. However, that possibility does exist. I think that what Netanyahu would like to try to do is find that sweet spot somewhere in the middle that he can get back a number of hostages, bring down a bit of the tension on the streets in Israel, we're starting to see the protests once again erupt, being led pretty much by the hostage families. He would want to maybe take the air out of some of those protests, but on the other hand, not overplay his hand and potentially risk the coalition. What does that exactly look like? What's that magical formula? It's hard to know. I think it would be less Palestinians released and less time for the offensive being paused. Basically, 
that's what the right wing wants to see. They want to see a continued operation and they want to see less people released from Israeli prisons. And what do you think the Hamas leadership want to gain out of this beyond a pause? And is that pause because they still believe in whatever reason they had for committing the atrocities of October the 7th in the first place? Or is there a case of they need time to, the likes of Yahya Sinwar needs time to to save his skin? You know, I think it's a combination of a few things. Number one is they want to survive, right? And and they want to be able to live the day after this war. And they don't want to lose the control over the Gaza Strip because that's what this is about for them. If there was an offer on the table that could see the leaders of Hamas in Gaza, particularly Sinwar, Muhammad, Def, uh, Marwan Issa, some of these other leaders, removed in exile, taken, for example, to Doha, where some of the other Hamas leaders currently live, I think Israel would go for that if that would be the end of the war. And even though it would mean they would live to see another day, but it would get back its hostages and remove Hamas from power, that would be a good ending, potentially, for Israel. But Hamas doesn't want that. Hamas doesn't want to lose the control over Gaza because that is that is its raison d'etre, and that's why it still is in this fight. So they would like a ceasefire that would allow them to rearm, regain, re- regroup, and uh, consolidate their forces, and hopefully survive. And by the way, you know we both know, David, six seven weeks is a long time in the Middle East, and if we get back. Let's say they're talking about 40 hostages in the first round, and then another deal becomes possible to get more hostages back. It, you, you, it will be hard to see how the IDF, the Israel Defense Forces, kind of revs back up the engines of its tanks and armored personnel carriers and goes back into Gaza in the big way and goes to Rafah after you're going to have, because what's going to happen in those six, seven weeks is you're going to have the Palestinians are going to start to move again throughout the Gaza Strip. Some are going to go back north. Maybe they're going to start rebuilding their homes. There's going to be a big effort by the international community to start the reconstruction. Israel will be attracted with many uh, offers of potential maybe normalization. Maybe the Saudis will say, hey, now's the time to move forward. But spare Rafa, don't go in. That means Hamas is still intact. So these are the dilemmas that the Israeli government is, is currently grappling with. What do your contacts in the intelligence community tell you when you ask questions like, how many hostages do you really think are still alive? What is the general assessment as to how well any of these captives are and if really there are significant numbers? It's really hard to tell. No one wants to give an exact number, you know, uh, I'll give you just one example, right? There's the the story of Shiri Bibas and her young red-haired sons. They've become an icon of this war, uh, Kfir and Ariel. And Hamas has claimed that they are dead. And they even released a video a couple months ago of the father, the husband of Shiri Yardane, saying that he had heard and crying and breaking down that his family was killed. But Israel doesn't know for certain. And Israel has said, we have not been able to verify those Hamas claims. But on the other hand, Uh, Let's go to the other extreme. Just uh, yesterday, uh, the IDF released that a soldier who was assumed to have been kidnapped, he's actually, his body, Oz is his first name, he's dead. His body is being held in Gaza. So what took from October 7th until now, 140 days or so, for Israel to be able to make that uh, 
you know, that clarification. And I think that this is a Sisyphean effort of collecting intelligence, data, trying to track. Israel has basically built, you know, just for our listeners to understand, Israel, when October 7th happened, and after the first day, couple of days, when the fog of war was still very heavy, even things started to settle, it created a whole new intelligence agency, which is basically interagency. It took people from the Shin Bet, which is the internal security agency responsible for Gaza. It took people from military intelligence and the IDF. It took people from the Mossad, which is like our equivalent of the MI6. And it, and it basically created a whole new staff with hundreds of workers whose sole job is to collect data, to analyze data, and to try to identify and locate the hostages, and also to discover whatever we can about what their status is. We've seen some rescue of hostages. There was a couple of weeks ago, the two men who were rescued in Rafah. But I think we also understand that that's not going to be possible for 134 who remain there. So the estimate to your question is very difficult to know, and no one wants to sign an exact number, but people talk about how anywhere from 30 to 50 of them may no longer be alive, which means we're talking about 80 or so. But the question, the thing that I say to that is, does it make a difference if it's 85 or 135? At the end of the day, it's still a big, a big number that this country will not be able to ignore the pain and the suffering and the need to get these people back home. Intelligence has been a huge talking point ever since the October 7th massacre, the failings that allowed this to happen. Now, in the last few days, you've been one of the leading journalists reporting on the so-called SIM card scandal. Just give us a sense of what this is all about and what the potential implications are. So the SIM, the SIM card scandal is basically on the night of between the 6th and the 7th, we all know, right, and this has been publicized long ago, that there was something that was an indication in the Israeli intelligence community, some, some alarm went off somewhere that said that something was happening. And that started a flurry of phone calls between the Israeli Shin Bet, the military intelligence, the IDF chief of staff himself got on the phone. The head of the Shin Bet went from his house to headquarters and actually dispatched a small team of commandos to go down to the border. So people did a few things, but what they, what we now know, and what now has been re revealed for publication, I've actually known about this, I was telling you before, for, for a few months now, but that there were a few dozen, maybe close to 100 Hamas members who replaced their Gaza network SIM card with an Israeli SIM card. The Gaza SIM card does not work once you cross into Israel. Pretty much it's it's very close to the border, yes, but as you go deeper into Israel, no. They needed for navigation. They needed to be able to call. They needed to be able to send data. And there were these bunch of dozen of SIM cards that went live. Now, Israel had kept this under a ban, a publication ban, because it did not want that the news that it has this capability to know that it can track when people are switching SIM cards to become public that the world now knows, but the world now knows this. So Israel will have to deal with that. But what it did show is that there was a strong indication that something was happening. Now, the problem was, is what do you do with intelligence always? It's not enough to know something, right? You have to understand what's happening, what's behind what you now know. And in the past, I've spoken with some intelligence analysts and officers who have said, listen, this has been done in the past, 
and lower numbers, smaller numbers, not several dozen. And it was always a drill or an exercise. So it wasn't something that immediately set off the alarm bell that made us think that this is going to be an unprecedented 3,000 terrorist invasion of Southern Israel in just a few hours. And we can maybe understand that. What I would say is that this, we have to remember then in the bigger scheme of things, Israel was living in a belief of a fairy tale, right? We, we were living in an illusion. In Israel, in Hebrew, we call it a misconceptia, like a misconception. Basically, we believed in this idea that Hamas, even though we know what they're doing, we know that they're amassing weapons. They're putting out videos saying we want to murder Jews. We They were showing us drills. They put all these videos on Telegram showing how they kidnap, mock kidnapping, abduction, attacks of, of IDF outposts and grabbing people, throwing them over the shoulders if they're abducting soldiers. So all this was known. But what Israel said to itself is, no, we, they're contained. They're on the other side of the border. They can never cross in a big way. And if they did, it would be maybe 15, 20 people, which is why the Shin Bet chief sent a small squad of commandos, because they already had soldiers along the border. We'll beef them up a little, but no one imagined the scope of this. And that is the strategic failure when you think about the intelligence failure of October 7th. And this SIM card scandal is becoming more of an issue for Netanyahu's government because of their confused response to yes. what they knew about this information. I can't help but laugh, David, because it's uh, just a, it says so much, something so small and stupid, but speaks volume of the political environment here in Israel. When When the news came out, it was basically broken by a pro-Netanyahu TV station and breaking the ban on publication. And once the news had already come out, it starts to spread on social media. So the IDF and the Shin Bet already put out an official statement. And once they put out the official statement, Netanyahu's office immediately put out a statement, which was mind-blowing, that Netanyahu had never heard of this story. Now, you have to say to yourself, hold on, I knew of the story. Who am I? You're the prime minister. And you don't know about something that basically every journalist who's been working on this story has known for months. So then defense officials start to say, not only did he know, but I sat in, we sat in briefings with him in the early days of the war where this was brought up. So of course he knew. So then he retracted the earlier statement, put out a clarification saying, I knew of some SIM cards, but I didn't know it was that many SIM cards. Now, the question you have to ask yourself is why would Netanyahu do that? What does that give? First of all, I think what we're seeing is, is just a the tactic that we see all along with Netanyahu and some of these other leaders like him around the world, that you can throw out a lie, and if it sticks, run with it. Why not? And maybe it'll work. So you try first the lie. But why lie? And that's the question. And the answer is, Netanyahu is doing everything possible to avoid any of the failures sticking to him. Now, if there were phone call, if this thing happened in the middle of the night, you could say, how come Netanyahu was not told about it? How come the chain of command didn't work? Why was he not involved? Now, he could then throw and say it was the chief of staff who didn't tell me. But basically, he wants to try to get remove himself from any equation of placing blame and taking responsibility. Let's remember, David, he has refused until now to take any responsibility for what happened that led to the October 7th Hamas massacre. Politicians around the world learning from each other, no matter what the situation. If a deal is not done, 
on hostages. What does a Rafa offensive look like and how bloody do we think things will get? Look, I, it, before that, I just want to say one thing about Rafa. It's important to put into the right context. Israel's been operating in Gaza now for just over four months. We're talking about a large piece of land, four months, 30,000 armed men above and mostly below ground, very difficult terrain, very difficult urban combat, embedded in a lot of civilian infrastructure. We're all seeing the evidence. It's all out there. Now, Rafa is an important element to this because... It is where they have four battalions that are still standing, and that's a significant force of about 10,000 plus soldiers who they still have, the Hamas forces. And it's where they have several dozen tunnels which go into Egypt and are used to smuggle weapons into Gaza. So, for example, if Israel were to say, I'm not, I can't operate in Rafah, uh, and we're going to end the war without that, then that means the rearming of Hamas is just a matter of time or some other terrorist entity that will take over. Those tunnels have to be destroyed, and those forces have to be removed, surrendered, caught, or killed. Now, what complicates this reality is the fact that when Israel started the war, well, not when Israel, when Hamas started the war, but when Israel started its offensive in Gaza, it war, it moved the, the population from the north down to the south, to an area near Rafah, where now you have about a million and a half people mostly civilians who are living in makeshift tents and makeshift refugee camps. Now, how can you operate there in a very, I would say, precision way that would not inflict damage and harm and casualties on those civilians who are who were told to go there by Israel? That's what creates the complexity here. So there are some ideas within Israel how to do that. For example, one of the ideas that's being drawn up in the plans of the IDF that I'm hearing about is moving the refugees north of Rafah, not back to northern Gaza, but north of Rafah to another area. That's not simple. These are a lot of people. They've been through a lot, and we have to recognize that there is a tragedy that has unfolded for the civilians of Gaza. I think it's Hamas's fault, but that is the reality. So what does how does Israel do this? But what I what I think is important for people to understand is that Israel has to go into Rafah. It's it's to the equivalent almost of, you know, in 2017, when America and the British were fighting ISIS in Mosul to take down Mosul. And we were talking about, by the way, smaller number of forces in a smaller area, which took a nine-month-long operation. Imagine, David, that someone said to the Americans and the British and the French and everyone else who was involved there and the Iraqis, of course, you know, this neighborhood of Mosul, don't go into that one. That one hands off. Would, would they have listened? Of course not, right? Because you got to take down the enemy. So I think that 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 on, 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 a, on a strategic level, it's important to understand that Israel will try to do everything it can to minimize again the the, the harm and the and the civilian casualties. And that's why, for example, Israel has not gone in yet, right? People said in the beginning. By the way, the other question I get, I, you know, I've been thinking about a lot. Why did Israel go into Rafah to begin with? Like, why did we start from the north? And that also come from the south simultaneously. And the answer was, A, we needed to move people from the north somewhere. And B, let's remember, Egypt is, has not been happy about this uh, coming operation, right? Because what's Egypt's concern? They don't want to see that million and a half refugees stream across the border into Egypt and now become Egypt's problem. So they also aren't so happy about this operation. But 
I think that if people recognize and the objective of taking down Hamas as much as possible, Israel does need to operate in Rafah. Hamas, of course, wants as many civilians to die as possible because that reflects poorly on Israel in the world in terms of the whole narrative of the military operation. Is there a sense that Israel are continuing to play into Hamas's hands, or is there simply no alternative? I think there's no alternative. Look, this war was forced upon us. It was not something that Israel at all wanted, wished for, or, or it even planned for. Right? We were caught completely by surprise. But I think what you've seen since then is that Israel really has gone above and beyond. And I know this is contrary to what a lot of your listeners and viewers are reading in the British media or in the international media. But when we look at the way that the IDF has been operating, it's pretty remarkable. The amount of munitions that have been dropped in the Gaza Strip and the number of people, even if I go with the Hamas numbers, because it's not the Palestinian health ministry, it's the Hamas numbers. They're talking about now close to 30,000 dead people. Israel has dropped much more than 30,000 munitions on the Gaza Strip, right? If we were committing genocide, this whole thing would look a lot different. Not to mention the fact that if I accept Hamas's numbers of 30,000, that I should accept the Israeli numbers, which talk about over 10,000 of those dead being combatants, being terrorists. And when you look at the combatant-civilian ratio, what we're looking at is for every combatant, how many civilians? It's always a question in war. And in this war so far, we're one to two and sometimes even below two. And if you look at, so that means for every combatant, two dead civilians and every civilian life lost is a tragedy. However, ask the United Nations, what's the average in conflict? And they will tell you it's one to six or maybe even one to nine. So Israel is doing things in this war that really have never been done before by a Western conventional military force. And I'm not expecting Israel to be applauded by anyone. But what I am expecting is people to at least be honest and understand that that this is a war that Hamas, like you said, David, they want us to kill civilians. And let me just add one other point to that, which is really, I think, at the crux of this whole conflict. And this is something that Golda Meir, our prime minister back in the 1970s, once said. The moment they will care about their children as much as we care about their children, the war will be over. Unfortunately, they put their children in front of them to be killed, and we're trying to fight them while circumventing and bypassing the children. Middle East expert Yaakov Katz there. Well, that brings an end to this episode of Israel's War on Terror. You can search for more installments wherever you typically get your podcasts, Please let us know in the comments if you've any issues you'd like us to tackle, and we'll do our best to take them on in the coming weeks. Thanks for listening.